Good morning and welcome church family. Those of you who are in person and online, we thank you for being here. We have a few announcements today. First, I will tell you that next Saturday there is both potluck and the return of game night. So if you would like to come to those, we would love to have you. And secondly, we have a Washington Conference constituency session. This means that we have to elect multiple names for multiple positions. A few weeks ago, I read you the names for the regular delegates. Today, I'm presenting to you the first reading of Sarah Lease for the executive board and Lynette Blakes for the board of education. These are placed before you, just so that you know. And if you have qualms, you can come tell me, but they're really lovely people, so I don't think you will. And last, I want to draw your attention. There is a lovely thank you in the bulletin from the Orwa family that you should read over because it's really beautiful. And then I will invite you to please stand and greet one another and pass the peace.
heads with me. Differently, Father, we thank you that we can be in this space, that we can lift our voices and sing about you, that we are able to do that. We pray that we would live life in the love that you showed us. And we thank you for the baptism today, and we are excited and let us rejoice about it. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, and welcome, church. So glad to see you all out there from this perspective. And there's no way better, in my opinion, to start a new year than with a baptism. We were talking in our Sabbath school this morning about how the Sabbath is an opportunity to reset. Each Sabbath comes along, and if we're tired and we're exhausted, we come together and say, let's rest in Christ. Let's rest in community together. And baptism is a similar thing where this is nothing to do with how good we are, how we have it all figured out. It's about trusting in who God is and what he's done for us. I have loved getting to know Jasmine throughout the course of Bible studies. I love her mind, her questions, her thoughtfulness. And it's clear to me that Jasmine knows this point. The most important point that I like to make sure is covered in a baptism, and that is How do you get to heaven? How are you saved? And she knows it's because of what Jesus has done and is doing in her life. She wants the gift of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer, even as we came into this place this morning, was that she would receive, with this baptism today, the full gift of the Holy Spirit, of love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's my prayer for all of you as well. And with baptism, the decision that's made today, right now, it's a decision to surrender to self. And that decision, Paul says, is a decision we can make each day. Each day following today, you can wake up and you can say, God, be with me today. There'll be good and bad that comes with that day because we're humans. And at the end of the day, you can do the same thing. God, help me to baptize myself, to surrender, to die to self today. So it is my privilege, Jasmine, in front of the Green Lake Church and those watching online to baptize you in the Green Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I'll have you step this way. And in the name of the, the Son, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit, it is my privilege as a pastor of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to baptize you, Jasmine, at this time. And all God's people said, Following the service today, Jasmine will be with me in the back, and she would love to have hugs and greetings from all of you. And I also always make it a practice in a baptism. If there's anybody else that would like to study, give their lives to Jesus, and be baptized, talk to Pastor Raven or myself or one of the elders, and we'd be happy to do that. And I want to conclude this part of the service with a a prayer for Jasmine and for all of us in that spirit and vein. Dear God in heaven, in this new year, with all of the craziness and the chaos that comes with being a human in this planet. We pray for your peace. We pray for your 
blessing, for your help, for your hope, for your goodness to permeate in our lives. And help us to reflect the light that you want us to shine. Be with us now. Be with Jasmine in a special way and fill her with your Holy Spirit. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Our offering this week is for the local church ministries, and we have a very active church, I'm thankful for that, and many ministries going on. So think about potlucks or um, vacation Bible school or game nights, young adults gatherings, um, Christmas support, and of course our housing ministry. So please um, give generously. Um, You can give online, you can give here, or there's a box in the narthex as well. So will the deacons stand, please? Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord, for all of our monetary blessings. Move us generously to give to these very, very needed programs, and bless and multiply what we do give you. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.
Good morning. Oh, wow. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. My name is Reed, for those of you who don't remember, but I know most of you. It's good to see you all here today. And um, I don't know if it'll come up, but there's a picture I sent to Gumi, and it might come up on the screen in a little bit, but it's a letter. It's, it looks like a letter, but it's actually um, sermon notes, and it's really, really old. And it was posted on Facebook by a friend of mine. And it's from 1847. The pastor's name was Dan Hudson. And the sermon notes are almost illegible because they are written in cursive, which you guys probably don't do a lot of writing in cursive these days, I would bet. Do you? Do you know how to write in cursive, Andrew? Wow. Does anyone else know how to write in cursive? Oh, okay. Well, what do I know? I don't know anything about school. Um, and so I just wanted to read you just a, like a little tiny piece of that sermon from 1847 that's, to me, just as good today as it was then because... The truth never really changes, right? The truth is the truth forever. It says, the Christian's hope is founded in regeneration. And then it says in parenthesis, or in quotes, it says, begotten again. Or regenerations. We must be born again. Now, how many of you have heard of being born again? A few of you? Okay. It's it's a pretty important part of what Jesus was talking about. So, um, and you just saw... um, Jasmine get baptized up there, right? There it is. You see that? Yeah, I had to make that out um, for this, (laughs) which was not the easiest thing in the world. That's some real chicken scratch. Um, And so when um, what Jesus is talking about is he says that we have to be born again of water and of spirit. Now, do any of you guys remember being born the first time? Oh, you do? Wow. That's, I'm sorry for that. Um, for most of us, we don't have to remember that because it's kind of, we're little babies and it's, it's you know, we're real small and it, we don't remember that part. Um, but we do get to remember being born again. And that's a promise that Jesus gives us. We get, to, we get to experience that in our life. And Jesus says in John 3, 5, that you need to be born again of water and of spirit. Now, how do you get born again, right? You've already been born. You're already here, right? And there is, there's a really smart guy who said to Jesus, how do I get born again? And he didn't understand it. He was a teacher. He was like a, a pastor of Israel, right? And so it's a, a little bit of a weird concept to understand, but it's, it's so important to realize that when you get dunked in that water, how many of you are already baptized? Not yet. Okay, cool. You got that to look forward to. It's going to be awesome. So when you get dunked in that water, you're getting born again of water and of spirit. When I was dunked in that water, it was almost a year ago too. That was a really impactful moment for me. So many people in this church stood up and said, I support Reed getting baptized. I mean, the whole, the whole crowd out here stood up and I had tears in my eyes. It was really special to me. And that changed a whole course and series of events in my life. And it'll change yours too. And 
so we get born again of the water. We get dunked in the water, baptized in the water, but we also have to be born again in spirit, right? If you have sadness in your soul, or if you have anger in your soul, or if you have um, pain, all of that, God gets to take that away from you so that you don't have to you don't have to live with that anymore, and you get to be live in a new way, in a new spirit that God will give you. And that's the second part, and that's a really, really special part you get to look forward to. And so that's, that's all I've got for today is just that little message that you get to be born again, right? You've done it once, and it's not that long ago, right? So for some of you, you're, you're still pretty young. It's only, you know, five or so years ago. I remember five years ago, ten years ago, but you get to experience it one more time. All right, that's all I got. Grab your blue buckets and take a little trip down the aisles. Our Heavenly Father, on this first Sabbath of the new year, we thank you for all the guidance and blessings of the past, and we look forward with hope in this new year because of you. May it bring a deeper relationship with you and a truer understanding of who you really are, one who loves us more than any earthly parent could one who thoughtfully created us in our, with our own distinct personalities, one who forgives us and welcomes us back in spite of all our transgressions, one who works in our hearts to change us so we can reflect your grace and your goodness to others. May we become a portrait of you. We pray for those who we know are facing difficulties and need your strength, your comfort, or your healing. Some of those are listed in the bulletin, and we keep these people in our mind. And we also probably all have other people whose names we'd like to bring before you in the silence.
Thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of prayer on behalf of others. And you know exactly what each person needs. Now we pray together the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Christmas, the celebration of the Christus. The shepherds heard the angels, Hodie Christus natus est. Today Christ is born. They hurried to Bethlehem, found the babe, and worshipped him. The wise men saw an unusual star and followed it. The star led them to Bethlehem, where they found the babe and worshipped him. Today, on the twelfth day after Christmas, we celebrate with others around the world the arrival of the wise men, Epiphany. The story is recorded in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. I hope you have found the insert in your bulletin. Please do look for that. This morning, we, as a congregation, are going to read the story together. There will be some first graders 
reading with us. So please read slowly and clearly. Perhaps we can pretend we are reading to a five-year-old child, a child who has never heard the story before. Please join me. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word.
The holidays are over, and we are in a new year, but I am still reflecting on part of the Christmas story, the part about the wise men. On New Year's Eve, my family had the privilege of seeing Ethan perform the main role at St. Thomas Episcopal Church as the young boy in a retelling of the wise men's story in this operatic play, it reimagined the wise man visiting a mother and her young child, and Ethan wonderfully played the lead role. It got me thinking as I watched this play, who exactly were the wise men? Where did they come from? And then today, we had the privilege of listening to our children's choir as they told us to let our light shine like the star of Bethlehem, to let the world see God's light through me. Christmas Day may be December 25, but it's not the end of the Christmas story. In many Western traditions, there are 12 days of Christmas, culminating around January 6, known as the Feast of the Epiphany. That's when many believe the Magi, or wise men, arrived to see Jesus. So today, we begin part one in a new series called Wise Men, as we seek to understand what it means to be wise. And as we get started, we have to ask exactly who were these wise men? How many were there? And as you look through church history and tradition, we are not exactly sure, although sometimes you will read perspectives where people make it seem as if they have it all figured out. Let me state out front, we don't know exactly, but the Bible does give us some clues. And so I'd love you, I would love for you at this time to turn to that bulletin insert or in your Bibles to go to Matthew chapter 2, and let's look at this together slowly and examine the question, who were these wise men and what can we learn about them still today? Matthew chapter 2, and I'll begin. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. And we have come to worship him. A question that we can ask as we slow down and reflect on this story, is there any language that is similar in other parts of the biblical narrative? And as we go back to the book of Daniel, we will see similar terminology. Magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans. And if you remember in the book of Daniel, it starts off with this narrative. The Jews from Jerusalem were taken captive and taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And there's four main characters that we learn about early in the narrative. Kids, can you remember their names with me now? There's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And early on in the narrative, we learn that these people were to go to the school of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were to become 
wise men, counselors to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Next scene, Daniel chapter 2. They've passed the tests. They've been the wisest of the wise within this school. And early on, there is this trial. The king has a dream, and he cannot remember it. So now is the chance for his astrologers, magicians, Chaldeans to shine. And he says, tell me my dream, because he thinks it has this important meaning. The problem is he can't remember it. This makes him so frustrated that he is willing to put a death decree. If you guys can't do your job, you're a bunch of frauds, and I am going to destroy you. Daniel and his friends are part of this group, and so they are told that if you cannot interpret the dream, you too will die. So what does Daniel do? He goes to the God that has carried him through the trials, and he asks for time, and he says, give us some time, and we will interpret the dream. And God gives Daniel the dream. Next part of this that I just want to look at briefly. In Daniel chapter 2, if you have never seen this story that tells the secession of empires, come to me. I'd love to study it with you. I also have a documentary that's really fascinating to look at. But real fast, for the sake of time today, the dream starts with Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold, representing Babylon. Babylon, the great empire of antiquity, is followed by the Medes and the Persians, followed by Greece, followed by Rome. And these wise men are influenced by Daniel and his friends. And even after Israel is enabled to go back to Jerusalem, not everybody does. Many of the the Jewish people stayed in Babylon. Some of them likely would have been of the class of the Magi, the wise men, this, this group. And so God is giving his influence even in the course of captivity. First point that I want to maybe plant in your mind as far as who these wise men could be, it could be an intermingling. As it always is, God's people are found in all parts of the globe, Western, Eastern, coming together in search for meaning and truth, and especially in times of crisis, in times of God's people needing to understand a climax in history, God reveals and does not leave people blind. First point I want to plant in your mind, these magi could have a connection, even going back to the time of Daniel. Let's transition to the next part of the verse, and we read, when Herod the king heard this, yeah, sorry, let's that part again. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Slow down. What does this mean? Even in the place and context where you do not expect the religious leaders, God's chosen, the Israelites, um, 
to have all of the light. From the east, there's people that have been studying, looking for the truth and for the light, and they're following the star. Now notice, Herod asks the religious authorities of the day, what does this mean? And they don't hesitate. They know exactly the prophecy, the prophet, that speaks to the place that the Messiah would come. But yet, when that news is given, watch, learn, notice how religious leaders of the time responded. Also, take notice, it mentions Bethlehem Judea, which is to distinguish between the other Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. This prophecy is very specific. For those that were looking, for those that were searching for the truth, whether from the east, from the west, from the inside or the outside of God's large church, there was opportunity to know, to understand when the appointed time had come. Next part of the text as we continue. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may come to worship him. We know the story. We know the motivation between the lines. He did not want to go and worship him. He had an ulterior motive. It was from a place of power, of not wanting his power threatened. And take note, something that I want to plant in your minds, this is for all of us. When we read the Bible, when we search for truth, for God, for ultimate reality, if we do so with sincere heart, we will find what we are looking for. If your ultimate goal is power, prestige, and you're threatened, you're afraid of anything that will take that away, you will find what you're looking for. You will demonize the other. You will turn even the Messiah into a crucified Christ, even as religious leaders. So he says, I want to know where he is so I can go and worship him. Next part of the text. And having heard the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now notice, in your own spiritual journey and pilgrimage, if there is times where the light turns on, that thing that you were searching for, grasping for, it becomes a reality. The epiphany, the thing that you were waiting for, becomes reality, and you realize this is it. They've been following. We don't know how long. Was this years in the making? As you think back through the biblical text, the first prophecy in the Bible that speaks of the coming Messiah happens all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Following the curse, the mistake of Adam and Eve, God says there will be one that will crush Satan. There will be a promised child. I imagine it's possible that even that moment, as she has yet to have a baby, could think that the promised one is Cain. Genesis chapter 4, the Cain and Abel story. But we know it goes for thousands of years until you hear of Mary, who is told you will have a son. 
And that was thousands of years after captivity in Babylon from a prophet named Micah who said, in this location, no, not that Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Judea, there will come the promised one, specific, on time. And these wise men, perhaps, who learned of God from Daniel and his friends, who've studied the scriptures, when the time comes, they're ready to follow the God that leads them to where the promised child is. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. In these short 12 verses, there is a lot packed in. And I want to conclude part one of this series on the wise men by examining some things that made these particular people wise. I also think it's possible we call them the wise men. It's possible there were some ladies in this mix as well. Things we don't know. First thing that made these wise men wise, they were able to pivot to adjust their expectations and response. Consider the epiphany these wise men must have had. Consider the epiphany that it would be for you. If you think that finally, when you get to this location of following the star and you will see where the Messiah one, the Messiah is, you would not expect that this would take place in a barn, in a lowly manger, that there would be no fanfare, that there would be no of the religious elite with their entourage to welcome. You would expect the prophets, the kings, those in power to be there, to be ready. Instead, it's quiet, except for the noise of animals and the smell that surrounds a barn. You might think to yourself, did we miss something along the line? How did the Messiah, the promised one, end up in a stable. John Maxwell, who wrote a devotional about this, puts it like this. What happens when you've been following a star and it leads you to a stable? What happens when all of a sudden, after thinking that something grand and glorious would be at the other end, you end up in the backyard of a barn? Every one of us have had times in our lives where we were following a star. Everything looked so promising. But in the end, we find ourselves in a stable. When the wise men come to the stable, they teach us two things. I believe that all wise men throughout the ages have done these two things when they come upon a stable to a place or a situation that isn't exactly what they were expecting. So lesson number one. When wise men find a stable, they look for God. Wise men of every age, when handed a difficult situation, don't panic about the problem, but hold steady and say, God is somewhere in this stable of life. There's something I can learn 
that I can hold on to and, and be stable with because God is somewhere in this. Consider Joseph, one of God's chosen people. He's following God. He's having dreams that he's telling his brothers. And in his desire to be faithful, he's wearing this coat that his dad gave him and his brothers are jealous. And he finds himself as a slave in Egypt. Then even worse than that, he finds himself in prison. He finds himself in a stable. But how does Joseph respond? He continues to connect with the God that has been leading him thus far. He shares what he knows with the fellow prisoners. He speaks of hope, of goodness, even in this dark moment where it seems like, God, why would you lead me here? What's your plan in this? And Joseph gives one of the famous statements in all of Scripture when ultimately he's confronted with his brothers who sold him into slavery, and he says, what you meant for evil, God transformed into good. Joseph could see beyond the darkness of the moment, the darkness in the stable, and he followed the light. Then there's Job, somebody that had it all, but then in the behind-the-scenes game, we, we see that he lost it all. It's tested, tried. His wife said, you should curse God and die. But Job, in the darkness of the moment, says, no, like, if, if that's it, I, I can't believe that that's it. There must be something I don't understand. I, even if he slays me, will not curse him. Even in the stable, the darkness that he does not understand, looks for the light, he hangs on to hope and finds meaning. Then there's David the man after God's own heart. But he didn't always act in ways that you would think would be characteristic of a man after God's own heart. And we're given one of the famous psalms in all the Bible where David, confronted with his sin, after he slept with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband killed, says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's confronted with his own darkness, his own despair, and out of that, he is restored. He realizes, has the epiphany, that even in my mistakes, I will not be abandoned by God. And in that darkness of his own choosing, demise, he experiences forgiveness and freedom from God. And then there's Paul, wrote the majority of our New Testament. We're going through the book of Acts right now in our Sabbath school class, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 7, Paul, also known as Saul, was right there. He put his cloak down at the stoning of the first Christian martyr in the Bible as if to say, this is right. He has an epiphany. He realizes that he is responsible for killing the Christians, and he's on the wrong side of this thing. When he has this epiphany, he changes everything. He becomes not Paul the persecutor, but Paul the preacher. 
and he dedicates his life to the cause. He ends up in prison. He's beaten to the point of death. He's hungry, but he says it's all worth it for the cause. When he finds himself in a stable, he knows that God has not abandoned him, and he has meaning. The difference between a weak Christian and a strong Christian is right here. Weak Christians see God only in the good. When good things come along, the weak and immature Christian says, well, it must be from God since everything good is happening. But I always cringe when someone says something like this. Well, it's just working out so, so well I know God must be in it, but not necessarily. Strong Christians see God in both good and bad. The mature believer sees God not only in the pleasures and the palaces, but also in the barnyards and stables of life. I've referenced this before, so I'll say this just briefly, but early on in my Christian experience, Married to Danelle for less than a year, we went as missionaries to the Philippines. I went to save some souls, to help some pagans be enlightened with my knowledge and expertise. If I'm honest with myself, I think I thought at the time that Jesus would probably come while I was there in the Philippines, and he would give me my crown, and I would enter into the glory as a result of being this dedicated missionary. I was coming, if I'm honest, from a place like that. As I mentioned, Danelle and I had not even been married for eight months, and it was hard. Learned early on, it's not easy on this path. I learned early on, I I don't even know this language, and I'm thinking I'm going to save their souls. They were gracious to me. And in the midst of depression and unknowingness of what it all means, we encountered the reality that we can rest in Christ. We don't save the world. We can't. I came across one of Paul's statements where he says, power is made perfect in weakness. We rested. And we continued on the journey didn't get it all figured out, don't have it all figured out now, but it became clear. It's not always easy where you end a journey and get the hero crown. And when Revelation speaks, the end epiphany for all of us, as we are given crowns, we will lay them down because we've recognized we we fell short. We don't have this all figured out. Here's the point. You may be walking into a stable period in your life, barn. You've been following the star, and it looks so good. Then all of a sudden you say, is this it? Remember, wise men have the ability to see God in the stables of their lives. That's point number one. Point number two. When wise men find a stable They offer their very best to God. But that isn't our natural inclination. You see, instead of offering gold and frankincense and myrrh in the stable of life, 
that we didn't expect, our temptation is to hold back. In fact, when we find a stable instead of a palace, we're often tempted to refuse to give anything, much less our best. We might think that this marriage isn't what it should be, and all of a sudden we say, well, maybe I want to hold back. We begin to stifle our feelings and to withdraw when we come to a stable of life, to a time when we need to give our very best, that's when we're tempted not to offer the best that we have. I think all of us need to go through what I call the mirror test. Every day when you and I get up, we can look into the mirror and ask ourselves, am I giving my very best in this situation? that I'm in, the situation may be one of many problems or it may be one of great prosperity, but we can ask ourselves, what can I do? What am I called to do in this moment that seems dark? How can I give my best right now? When the wise men came to the stable, they didn't withhold anything. They didn't look at one another and say, "Um, guys, you know what? I don't think we have to leave all of the gold, the myrrh, the frankincense. You you know, we we were just talking to Herod, and this, I know the star ended up here, but the power people are back over there. How about let's use these resources so we can stay connected? It seems like a bad investment to leave all of this in a barn. The wise men didn't rationalize that way. Certainly, we don't need to give him all of this expensive stuff, they might have thought, but wise men always give their best. The difference between the average and the above-average person lies in just three words, and then some. Wise men give their very best, and then some. They forgive people, and then some. They're always walking the extra mile. They're always taking the extra step. It's an effort. Winston Churchill said it like this, the world is being run by tired men. I I think what he meant by that is that those in the power positions, the leaders of our world, really make a mark for God or for history, cannot afford to function without sufficient energy. The players and shakers Give everything. Now, reflecting on this this week, I I have to be authentic and honest. That's just who I am. And that challenged me. I agree with it. We should always strive to bring our best. But as someone who has not had much sleep this week, as someone who could be characterized as a tired man at times, I am thankful that our best may look different during different seasons and times in our lives. Our gold may be the gift of a heartfelt apology to a friend. Our frankincense may be making a neglected phone call, writing a letter, sending a text, even though the words seem to be too little, too late. Our myrrh could be offering our presence, even though we don't know what to say. Wise men give their best, 
even as circumstances and expectations change. When we come to the stables in our lives, let us be wise and remember to look for God. Let us bring him the best we have to offer and let us allow him to change the direction in our lives, enabling us to become the men and women God wants us to be. So this is part one in the new series, looking at the wise men, asking, reflecting, how can we be wise in this world that seems so full of chaos? How can we be authentic, loving Christians when sometimes what's been reflected to the world is a caricature, an apostasy of what Christ actually represents? So we'll pick it up again next week, and we'll look at a famous figure in more recent history, somebody who was wise, who challenged the narrative of the day and helped lead other people to freedom. Let's conclude with our our, our song here now.
Dear God in heaven, as we start the first Sabbath of this new year, come in to this church, come into our homes, come into our lives. Thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the reset that comes with each Sabbath and each new year where we can dedicate and with intentionality search after the light. May you let us, our light shine. May the world see our light through us. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.